0: You're listening to The Brook in Madison, Alabama. Hey, good morning. We'll be in Genesis chapter 29. Genesis 29, I believe I put the wrong scripture on the back of your bulletin. Not 24. Genesis chapter 29. We'll be in verses 21 through 27. Then Jabin said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. And he went into her, and Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to, to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? And Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also, in return for serving me another seven years. Father, as we approach your word, we do not approach a book. We approach your living, breathing, active word that transcends time that transcends culture that speaks into the very heart of what it means to be a human it shows us who we are, it shows us who you are Lord so we come as children needing to be fed and we trust God that you will feed us so give us ears to hear in Jesus name Amen so my younger child uh, Dawson he's 17 months old now um, and if you know anything about uh, toddlers, they make messes. It's what it means to be 17 months old. Uh, we, we have to, I finally got all the locks on all the cabinets so he doesn't pull everything out of every drawer. We have to keep our garbage can on top of the counter. Uh, we have to keep every door to the bathroom locked from the outside or the toilet will be his personal little play area. You know, we've caught him You know, doing that. When he's done eating dinner, He doesn't just stop. He throws the bowl and the food and he wears the rest of it in his hair. And that's just kind of what it means to be a toddler. And if you didn't know that, you have never been around toddlers. Toddlers make messes. It's a fact of life, right? Here's another fact of life. People sin. Uh, People are sinners. Sinners sin. And it's not a popular concept, Um, Many would say, there is no such thing. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. And we will leave it at that. That doesn't change what's reality. Reality is there is sin. And sin, uh, it affects, it changes our lives. Sin changes. Sin affects um, other people around us. And sin also affects our relationship with God. So, We do well this morning to look at the life of Jacob and discover what happens when sinners sin. When sinners sin. Look back at verse 21 with me. It says, And Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. He went into her and Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? And Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. So recall what's happened up to this point. Um, Jacob, in league with his mother, Rebekah, they have deceived Isaac, Jacob's father. He has wronged his brother, Esau. He stole his blessing. So an already unstable relationship between Jacob and Esau, it escalates. Esau says out loud, my father, Isaac, he's old. He's going to die soon. And when he does, I'm going to kill my brother, Jacob. And so Rebecca gets word of this, and she says to Jacob, Jacob, I want you to go and live with my brother Laban and Paddan Ram. And when you get there, I want you to take one of Laban's daughters as your wife. So Jacob goes. He goes to Paddan Ram, and when he gets there, he sees Laban's younger daughter, Rachel. And the Bible tells us that immediately he falls in love with her. Immediately Rachel is beautiful, to Jacob. But Laban's older daughter, Leah, is less attractive, at least less attractive to Jacob. So Jacob makes this deal with Laban. Hey, I'll serve for you. I'll, I'll work for you. I'll be your laborer seven years. And when the seven years are up, you'll give me your daughter, Rachel, her hand in marriage. They agree to this. And Genesis 29:20 20 says that those seven years, they seemed as but a few days. To Jacob, because he loved Rachel so much. So now the seven years are up, and Jacob says to Laban, I, I want to consummate my marriage. Give me my bride. So Laban pulls all the people together. We're going to have a week-long celebration here. We're going to have a, a week-long festival to celebrate the union of Jacob and Rachel, not Leah. But it's quite a big but— Um, It says he took Leah and brought her to Jacob. And Jacob consummated his marriage, not with Rachel, with Leah. How does that happen? Three thoughts. Uh, One, the Hebrew word for feast there implies some kind of drinking. Was Jacob inebriated? Maybe. Uh, It would have been customary for her to wear a veil over her face all day. He didn't know who it was. Three, it was nighttime, dark at nighttime. I don't know. Cut it one way or the other. Laban pulled it off. Laban pulled it off. And in the morning, and the Bible makes it worse, it says, behold, it was Leah. I think a a modern rendering might be O-N-G. It was Leah. surprise, surprise. Uh, Jacob, reasonably so, is, you'd think, shocked and surprised. He says to Laban, Laban, what is this you have done to me? I served you those seven years for Rachel. Then Jacob, he he says to Laban, he, he, he sets forth this question that is most interesting for Jacob to set forth. He says, why have you deceived me? Could mean, why have you betrayed me like this? Why have you dealt so treacherously with me? That seems kind of a fair inquiry, given the level of deceit. I mean, this wasn't even some man. This was his own uncle who had deceived him in such a severe manner. And he even has the nerve to throw this bogus excuse on top. It's not done in our country that way. And even if that's true, he would have told Jacob before now, which only proves it was a premeditated scheme and strategy against Jacob. So we begin to sympathize with Jacob's plight. And all of a sudden, too quick, we remember, hold, hold on. It wasn't so long ago, Jacob, you didn't deceive your uncle. You deceived your own father. And you didn't wrong and hurt your cousin. You wronged, you hurt your own brother. So could it be the most surprising thing about the story is the fact that Jacob had the nerve to be surprised by God's design Jacob is on the opposite sin he doled out. He is in a very real way reaping the sins that he has sown. So the right question is not, how could this have happened to me? But rather, how could this not have happened to me? Jacob reflects, ah, my hands are dirty. My hands are guilty. So rewind, why is Jacob here in Panorama and not back home in Canaan with his family? Why is Jacob not there with the one wife that he loves? Why well, I see 450 miles away from home, having just worked seven years of what he says to be in a few chapters, hard labor in the sun, hard labor in the cold and sleepless night. All because Jacob is in a long miserable season of reaping the painful consequences of his sins couple lessons on sin to heed from the life of Jacob. Don't be surprised by the painful consequences of your own sin. Expect them. Don't be surprised by the painful consequences of your own sin. Expect them. Now, isn't it true Jacob is the son of Isaac and Isaac is the son of Abraham and Abraham is the one through whom the nations will be blessed? Uh, Isn't this the family that God has uniquely called out and chosen to do mighty acts through? Uh, Isn't this the family that has a unique blessing and protection on them? Uh, Isn't this the family through whom God's going to do a unique redemptive work for humanity? Yes, of course. In the very same way that God has uniquely loved, chosen, and called out us, His church. But in no way do God's gracious purposes of election... Give us a license to bypass the very real consequences of the sins we choose to commit in real time, everyday life. Sin is sin. And sin always has painful consequences for the one who chooses to entertain sinful impulse as opposed to obedience to the Lord. As one of my grade school teachers would always say, sin, it tastes so good in your mouth, but it will always sour in your belly. So it's critical then for us to always maintain a proper biblical doctrine of sin in all of its forms, in all of its fashions, recognizing sin in all of its forms, in all of its fashions. It has very real consequences and effects. And you say, well, yeah, sure. If I like shoot somebody in the head, they're not going to dismiss me in a court of law because I tell them I'm a Christian. Or if I cheat on my wife, yeah, i probably, maybe will lose my wife, ruin that relationship, and maybe hurt my relationship with my kids. But, but instead of shooting someone, what if I just harbor bitterness in my heart? That's my own business. There's no consequence for that. Or what if instead of cheating on my wife, I have my own little fantasy world of lust in my head and heart? Like that's not, there's no consequences for that. That's my own business. That's like saying, I'm fine with having a few cancer cells in my body, just as long as I don't get overrun, which of course is to deny the very essence and nature of sin and cancer. It metastasizes. So the longer you play with it, believe it will overrun you. It will overtake you. So we don't, we don't have a get out of jail free car because we're the Lord's. And if that's your mindset, that's your mentality, I'm afraid you don't have it in the eternal sense either. So what goes up? Must come down. Law of gravity. Very same way the Bible makes clear. What you sow, you will reap. Paul affirms that in Galatians 6. So you sow to your flesh. There are consequences of that in this life, but there are consequences of that in the life to come. You sow to the Spirit. There are benefits of that in this life and what God does and how he uses you. And there are eternal consequences of eternal life. So you cannot disconnect what you're doing in this life and what's happening in eternity. It's the same thing. So righteousness then, it's not something I plan on participating in someday. I'll plan on getting to that, maybe even in the afterlife. No. Righteousness either is or is not who I am right now in Christ Jesus. And if I have been made righteous in Christ Jesus right now, sin will be. It will be a great grief to me and the consequences of it expected by me. Commenting on this very passage, Warren Wearsby says, God in his grace forgives our sins when we confess them, but God in his government allows us to suffer the painful consequences of those sins. This disappointment was just the beginning of the harvest for Jacob. So on the face of it, Uh, That seems an unwelcome reminder. If it is so true that the sins we commit in this life, there are real consequences for them, why do we need to say it out loud? If it is so, just let it be. Don't depress everybody this morning, right? Here's why we have to say it out loud. We have an obligation, even a joyous obligation, to address the nature of our own sins and their consequences because God in His love and indestructible sovereignty Always uses our evil and their consequences as a means to renew and restore us through repentance. Say it again. We have an obligation, even a joyous obligation, to address the nature of our own sins and their consequences. Because God in his love and indestructible sovereignty always uses our evil and their consequences as a means to renew and restore us through repentance. So Paul raises that point when he writes to the Corinthians concerning their abuse of communion. He says, hey, some of you are weak. Some of you are ill. Some of you are dying. God is judging you so that you're not condemned along with the world. You're being judged by God so you're not condemned along with the world. So God never lets anything in our lives go to waste, even our sin, for the purposes of drawing us to himself in Christ for his glory. A lot of times God will make us walk through fire, even fires we started, not to burn us up, but to purify us. The consequences of sin lead us to recognize the breach of godly character within me that I may repent, that I may thank and praise the Lord for his grace and mercy. Like Jacob, do I heed the painful lesson and move closer to the Lord because of it? Revelation chapter 3, verse 19. Lord says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Do what's right. Go in the way that you should. Calamity, stacked upon calamity, when we ignore the Lord's painful yet merciful leadership away from sin and towards Godliness. Think not that God waits idly by while you wallow in your sin and come out of it when you please. Think not that the consequences of sin are meaningless annoyances in life. They're not. To ignore them is to ignore the Lord. To ignore the Lord is to deny his leadership. To deny his leadership is to reject his salvation. To reject his salvation is is the acceptance of certain death and punishment in eternity future. Proverbs 15. Ten, there is severe discipline for him who forsakes the way. Whoever hates reproof will, will die. George Whitfield mentioned in his journal that during his first voyage to Georgia, the ship's cook had a bad drinking problem. When the cook was reproved for it and other sins, he boasted that he would be wicked until the last two years of his life, and then he would reform. Whitfield added that within six hours of the time the cook made his boastful statement, he died of a drinking-related illness. Charles Spurgeon says repentance makes us see the evil of sin, not merely as theory, but experimentally as a burnt child dreads fire. So I don't want to pour salt into, uh, maybe your wound this morning. If you're dealing with the consequences of sin, you're in a particular season. But it must be said to you, and it must be said to me, not sometimes, but all the time. Repent according to God's word and the leadership of God's spirit. Repentance isn't something I did when I came to Christ. Repentance is a lifestyle. Until I'm with Christ in glory, I constantly need to be in the posture of turning. I'm constantly changing. I'm constantly moving from who I was to who Christ has called me to be. And so when I say I don't want to repent, I step out of my identity in Christ. And I say, no, I don't want that anymore. I want to play in both arenas. I want to live in both worlds. And it doesn't work that way. We repent if we truly have been called. Thanking the Lord that he allows us to see the consequence as a means of reproof and correction. Or you just keep hitting the repeat button. I like learning this lesson. It's a good one to learn and learn and learn over and over again. If so, you're going to stagnate in your faith. You're going to dampen your witness for how God can take any life that's been through any fire and renew and restore it through actual genuine repentance. When sinners sin. Back at verse 27 with me. So Laban said to Jacob, complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. So though it's true, uh, Jacob, he's reaping consequences for his own sin, No less is it true, Laban's actions are Laban's actions. What Laban chooses to do, it's his fault. We all are accountable to God for what we do. And here he exposes his crooked scheme to Jacob. I'm going to marry off the less attractive one to you. I duped you. And now I'm going to drain seven more years of service off of you. How very convenient for Laban. Problem. Jacob doesn't want this one didn't want Leah. He only ever wanted the other. He only ever had eyes for Rachel. He doesn't want to work. He doesn't want to serve for 7 more years. But strictly speaking because of Laban's sin against Jacob, Leah was his wife. He consummated his marriage not with Rachel, with Leah. It would get real emotional. Oh, you know, some Nicholas Sparks something or another. He loves Rachel. Few days, blah blah blah. Fact, Leah was his wife. Whether it would have been culturally reprehensible, or he gets the moral gravity of the situation, he's not going to part with Leah. Leah is his wife. So what is he supposed to do? I mean, is, is it biblically permissible for him to take both wives? I mean, is that okay? I think so. Quick biblical survey here of polygyny, a man with multiple wives. Uh, Genesis 2, God clearly defines marriage as one man, one woman. Paul in or G- Jesus in Matthew 19 affirms the Genesis account of marriage. Paul's remedy to avoid sexual immorality in 1 Corinthians 7 is a one man, one woman marriage relationship. Paul uses a one man, one woman relationship to tell the story of the gospel. Uh, a one woman man is the requirement for an elder in the New Testament. The first polygamist in scripture is Lamech, a wicked idolatrous man who God will soon wipe out with a flood. Polygamy turns Solomon into an idolater. It brings incredible, uh, unnecessary amounts of stress and heartache to Abraham and Sarah. Once the law is given to Moses, it explicitly condemns marrying two sisters in their same lifetime. God forbids kings from, it says, at least marrying many wives. So all these facts to say, if it isn't explicitly sin for Jacob and given God's very plain account of marriage in Genesis 2, it seems as though it is, it is at least incredibly unwise. You just don't see polygamy prescribed by God. You don't see polygamy working out for anybody in the Bible. It's true. But take a step back. Either way you cut it, whether he stays with just Leah or marries both of them, his situation has been Forever changed. It has been forever altered by Laban's deception. Jacob will, for the rest of his life, deal with the consequences of Laban's sin. Jacob will never only be married to the woman he loves. And it's not even just Jacob, it's Leah and Rachel. At least the next 13 years of their lives will be nothing but turmoil, it will be nothing but animosity. Leah and Rachel will compete against one another to bear more children for Jacob. To win his love, I mean, it's weird. It's like reading like a dirty Hollywood tabloid. It's like, why is that in the Bible? I mean, they hate one another. I mean, they resort to like folklore, uh, kind of mythical things to try to make themselves attractive with mandrakes. I mean, they do all kinds of stuff. So the animosity is intensified because Jacob, the Bible tells us, fails to adequately love both of them. Further[s] the animosity. So it's not even just Jacob. Leah and Rachel will suffer the sins of their father. For the rest of their life. All three of them suffering the painful consequences of someone else. Second lesson on sin from the life of Jacob. Don't be surprised by the painful consequences of the sins of others, expect them to. Don't be surprised by the painful consequences of the sins of others, expect them to. At least the consequences of like my own sin, that seems fair. Like, hey, if I got to suffer, if I got to walk through something, I mean, at least let it be what I did wrong. But you come to grips with the fact and it's, you realize it's unpredictable. You realize it's kind of horrifying. We live in such a world where we're oftentimes at the mercy of the sins and actions of other people. The world isn't in a mess because there are a few sinners on the loose. We need to round them up. We'll all be fine. Just get them around it. We'll go back to normal. That's not the case. The world is a chaotic mess because every human on the planet is capable of all kinds of evil all the time. And those who suffer the consequences are so often all the other sinners making messes all the time. And what's worse is oftentimes you can't even deduce why you or someone you love is suffering what you're suffering. So you can put yourself in Jacob's shoes and then some. Hey, I didn't want to be married to Leah. Hey, guess what? You are. Hey, I didn't want that relationship to fall apart, and it wasn't even my fault. Hey, but it did. Hey, that person that I love, sick, and I can't explain it. Hey, but it's happened. So whether it's deducible or not why we and the people we love experience what we experience, here's what's plain. Sin has not failed to literally touch everyone and everything, You will never meet someone who's dodged the consequences and effects of the sins of other people and just sin in general. We are so very plagued. Again, thank you for stating what's painfully obvious. That's just depressing. Here's why we we have to say it. Here's why. Because in a world tearing itself apart through the daily pursuit of sin and the consequences that ensue therein, As the church, we have the high calling in the manner and likeness of Jesus, not to self-serve, not to self-preserve, but rather to deny self, to love, to forgive with all joy and all tribulation. That with our words and with our lives, we can declare to the world, hey, this is not the end. This is not the end. Being a Christian doesn't mean I pass over pain. It doesn't mean I pass over what hurts. Yeah, your pain's very real, but let me tell you what God has done and what God is doing to set it right, despite the horrible mistakes, despite our failures, despite the messes that we all make all the time. So, hey, as a Christian, no, my life isn't always what I want it to be. Things happen, people wrong me. Things happen, I don't know why they've happened to me, but you know what? I love and I forgive and I have joy. Why? Because my life, it doesn't, isn't swayed by what happens to me. It's not swayed by what people do to me. My life is rooted in who Christ is, what Christ did, and how Christ forgave me. That is his way. That is what he taught me to do. That's who he taught me to be. So, so the church then has to first manifest love and selflessness amongst itself. It's a very power te- powerful testimony of what Christ has actually done in us and through us. And then we carry it out to the world like a city set on a hill. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, we're called as the church to be weird. Very weird. Very weird and different in the way that we love, very different in the way that we forgive, very different in the way that we ex- hold ourselves, hold ourselves in posture when we experience trial and trouble. This is what most people are doing. I'm either defending myself or I'm offending. Christ says deny yourself. Christ said pick up your cross. Christ said love. Christ said forgive. Christ said when you don't act like everybody else acts, it validates the gospel. It validates who I am and what I have done in you and through you. So if it seems as though the local church is failing to do the works that Christ called it to do, if it seems the local church is failing to say what Christ called it to say, are we drifting into anonymity, you have to wonder? The consequences of sin, the world can't make sense of it. Sin, its consequences, its hurts speak in such loud volumes. Are we speaking at all? Are we living at all? Are we loving at all? Have we forgotten the way of our master? Or are we strangely okay with responding to life in the same defensive or offensive posture as everyone else? Let it not be so. It doesn't mean we're perfect, but it does mean with our words and with our lives, our declaration will always be, this is not the end. In a conversation with someone one day, John Wesley was told by a man, I never forgive. Mr. Wesley wisely replied, then, sir, I hope that you never sin. You've got to maintain Christ likeness in all things, recognizing we're no better than anyone else. What Christ has called us to at the table, that call goes out to all. Freely we have received, freely we must give. Do we radiate unique joy because of the hope we have in what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do someday? If we don't live weird, if we don't live different, we willingly discard the very thing the world needs to hear. This is not the end. And I'm not saying it's easy. It's not easy at all. I mean, I can harbor bitterness. I'm going to write that down. and I'm gonna ho- They don't know about it, but I'm going to write it down. And I'm going to keep it inside. Jesus said, no, forgive, love, see my example. So it's not easy. I'm just saying it's right. If you have been called by Christ, indeed, we must do what Christ has called us to do in the way we love and forgive and serve. When sinners sin. So Jacob's sin has painful consequences. He experiences uh, Laban's sin has painful consequences Jacob and Laban's daughters will experience. Sinners sin. And we're helpless to do anything about it, only reap the painful consequences. Turn with me, if you would, to uh, Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1 is the most undervalued chapter in the New Testament. It is the most shocking, weird, slightly embarrassing chapter. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. Jacob the father of Judah. Why is Jacob in Jesus' line? Jacob's a mess. He did horrible things. He reaped horrible consequences. His dad was a mess. His grandfather was a mess. Why is David in here? Why is Jesus the son of David? David was a murderer. David was an adulterer. How did God do anything good with any of these people? And most of all, why do we find Jesus' name among them? Despite sinners in their sin, even in the midst of sin and its consequences, God's grace has abounded not to those who have earned it, but to those who least deserve it. Not those who have done right by the Lord, but those who have sinned against the Lord. We all join this long stretch of helpless, sin-saturated, the consequence bound in their misery and depravity, but we also join them in celebration, the joyous elation of what God did by his grace to free us from our sin and the ultimate consequences for them. When sinners sin, God's grace abounds. When sinners sin, God's grace abounds. Through a long line of immoral, imperfect, fearful, doubting, failing people, Christ came in all his perfection to set us right with himself With his father and even one another, Christ renewed, Christ restored. So I am not surprised this morning by my sin. I am not surprised by the consequences of my sin. I am surprised by grace and truly not nearly enough. When I consider the full body of my sins and Christ and his body hanging on the cross, it's all we can do to behold it. And see what God has done for us in grace and mercy and love. And where I expected the full measure of God's wrath and judgment against me, I have received, you have received what we would not have expected. A substitute. Jesus in my place. Jesus bearing my sins and my consequences. Jesus on the cross paying my debt and setting me free. Jesus making me new. Jesus making all our sins and their horrible consequences come untrue. Jesus who defeated death. Jesus who rid me of my shame. Jesus who gave me a new heart. Jesus who placed upon me his perfection and righteousness. Jesus who has loved me an enemy. Jesus who has called me his beloved. Jesus who has made me a friend of God. Jesus who will never leave or forsake me. Jesus who will guide me safely home. Jesus who is himself the very appearing of the grace of God to sinners like us. So have you lost the wonder? Have you lost the joy of being loved by Jesus? Grace upon grace. We must rediscover it as the only thing truly worth having in life. Then and only then will true repentance spring forth as we turn from sin to Christ then and only then will we love and forgive and radiate the hope and joy found in Jesus. So church, we only have reason to rejoice this morning because as we have sinned to the uttermost, God has been gracious in the uttermost. So may all glory and praise be to God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to The Brook.